right now we talked a lot about the policy level concerns right i wanted to go deeper into the household and talk about how we need to support caregivers and parents at this time right uh, we're talking about a situation where children who were enrolled across schools in okay, the developing world were heavily relying on school feeding programs for example and now in the absence of those school feeding programs governments need to think about how they either through school grant programs through cash transfers through ration delivery are able to prioritize non education related outcomes that actually have a bearing on education outcomes we're talking about now malnutrition to rise about gender based violence to rise we're talking about how parents need to actually be trained or sensitized in handling some of these things sometimes people may have the like tendency to romanticize education as something sterile which just create a safe space and give the right tools but actually we need with those children and with the children that was displaced from from their houses and with children in Afghanistan that confront such a complicated reality their complicated reality is is power it is actually something that they can build themselves from but it is us that needs to frame it this way when we take a closer look at um education reform or even innovation in education you will see initiatives looking at teaching students how to be critical uh, consumers and producers of media or social media or uh, how to be critical thinkers in general etc how to how to be effective communicators but i think at the heart of all of this especially given what we're experiencing now around the world and across the world teaching young children empathy and kindness is critical. Welcome to Oxford Policy Pod. I am your host Suta Kavari. Now Oxford Policy Pod replaces a look at the issues. Um still having the same conversations about some of the contemporary policy challenges that are facing us at the moment with students from the Blavatnik School of Government at the University of Oxford. On today's episode we'll be talking about the crisis in learning brought on by COVID-19. I'm joined by Shabana Basich Rasikh who is a fearless educator from Afghanistan and co-founder of the of the first all girls boarding school in Afghanistan. I'll be also be joined by Yair Laibo, founder of the International School of Peace for Refugee Children on the island of Lesbos in Greece. and they'll be talking about the impact of the importance of education in times of crisis but before that i am joined by druv gupta talking about the unprecedented global shocks to the education system globally druv how are you and where do you find yourself hi suta glad to be here um i'm i'm right now in new delhi uh, i work with the global education practice at the world bank um and i usually look at you know transforming education systems to be uh prioritizing student learning all right and perhaps if you can in way of telling us how is the current situation like in india is it is it a lockdown partial lockdown or has the situation been improving um so we've uh, started reopening schools across the country now uh but i think if we look at the impact of covid on uh the educational attainment of children i think it's important to look at it um and divide it rather by private schools and public schools uh india is one of the largest public school systems we are talking about 120000 schools 
And of course, the digital divide between the children that go to public schools and the children that attend private schools is massive. Uh, And henceforth, the interventions and the initiatives during school closures differ for both these uh, sets of children. If we talk about public schools, the Union Ministry of Human Resource Development in India uh, has basically classified households by available digital infrastructure into six different categories. And there's a different strategy for all of these sets of children. Um, In Delhi in particular, uh, most teachers are in public school relying on WhatsApp messages uh, to communicate with the children that they teach. So they'd they'd be sending worksheets that are uh, based on, um, you know, the the daily syllabus that they have to cover. Uh, But the the goal is very much to uh, promote reading and writing and very basic literacy and numeracy skills at the moment through WhatsApp. And for senior children, for children studying in senior secondary grades, such as grade 11 and 12, there are live online classes being delivered here in Delhi, uh, but only for up to two hours. Um, And of course, children that lack uh, or don't have any access to smartphones or uh, internet obviously have absolutely no connection right now uh, with schools. Now, can you perhaps tell me about, so that's the the situation currently in India. And but how has that affected? Um, I mean, we, we knew that there was already a learning crisis due to in, in adequate, in, sorry, in inequality in access and the level of outcomes. So how has COVID-19 impacted on, on sort of educational outcomes for a lot of the children in India? Very well, Sudha. You're absolutely right. I think over the past decade, there's this um, renewed understanding in the world that Uh, Even though we've made great strides in enrolling children into school, schooling doesn't always translate into learning. Uh, What that means is that we've we've made great efforts in enrolling children. The access to education has has improved all across South Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, However, children attending these schools are absolutely not showing results when we test their numeracy and literacy levels. Um, So, you know... The gaps that we've, we've, we've already agreed upon exist, that exist in the education system are only going to further uh, you know, increase because of COVID-19-related school closures. But if we talk about uh, the school closures and how they affect education, I, I, would, I would sort of look at the direct impact of those school closures separate from the indirect impact. What I mean is that, well, of course, as soon as schools close and you have children who are not attending these schools now, we're, we're obviously going to see an increase in dropouts. You know, we're not going to have all of these children re-enroll into school once school closures actually uh, close and schools reopen. Um, most of these children, because of the, the kind of uh, loss of income in their household, would have either entered the labor market uh, very early on uh, or would have migrated or would have just completely dropped out of um you know, the schooling system altogether. Uh, But even this entire time period that they don't attend school, you know, we're going to see losses in terms of learning levels. Uh, A lot of them are going to show dips in their literacy and numeracy levels. And and this, this entire divide is going to, in fact, exacerbate the already existing inequalities in the system. We go yeah. to, you know, the indirect impact and we're going to see actually the students' mental and emotional health will greatly suffer because of these school closures. For a lot of these children who are now just going to be at home the entire time, we're going to see an increase in abuse at home outside. 
Are we going to see a rise in trafficking cases? We're going to see a rise in sexual exploitation. Well, uh, you know, when when we are talking about a crisis like th- this, um, learnings from Ebola have shown that uh, we're going to see a rise in cases of child marriage and early childbearing, teenage pregnancies is heavily linked to girls dropping out of the school system. And I think, I mean, you've painted a very vivid picture of what's um, the, about the impact of COVID nineteen has had. On, on sort of like a, a outcomes and attainments. But tell me now, when we talk about schools reopening and there's been raging debates, um, both in the UK where I am at the moment, I mean, and right across, and right across the world about when is it safe to return children back to school, um, given some of the, the number of issues that you just raised. But what has the current debates been around schools reopening? Is it safe to send children back, uh, back to school? Or what, what are some of the issues that first need to be addressed before, um, children or children can be led back into schools or schools can reopen? Absolutely. I think um, what we're seeing right now is uh, evidence that actually children are not primary transmitters when it comes to COVID-19. And even if children actually themselves get the disease, it's, it's a very mild version. Um, and I think the debate right now that the world is facing is that governments here um, have a very difficult decision to make. You know, there are trade-offs. Do you try and close all schools in the entire country um, at the at the expense of the learning losses for all of these children, for protecting these few children who get the disease, versus do you open the school and actually uh, contract trace these few children that actually get the disease and, and try and limit transmission from that point of view? Um, and and I think to your to a question, which is uh, when is it appropriate to open schools? We don't have much evidence, Suta, at the moment. I think one of the things about this pandemic is that everything is so unprecedented. We, we don't have a lot of data and evidence backing any of the decisions that we are making. One thing that we do know is that we cannot open or reopen schools um, like business as usual. Uh, we, we are expecting a staggered approach, to say the least. We, we are not going to be enrolling all classrooms. We are recommending start early. We're talking about the youngest children to come back to schools first. Um, we're talking about having multiple shifts. We're talking about having uh, fewer children in each classroom. We're talking about reducing the school day. Uh, we're talking about, you know, ensuring that disinfection can happen in those schools. I mean, that sounds, I mean, from a practical perspective, that sounds all good and well. And it's, and I think that's something that's not, I don't want to say relatively easy for a lot of developing developed countries or de- uh, developed economies. But I, I'm thinking, for example, say a school in where I'm from, from Namibia, Vintuk. Uh, my mother is a teacher at a primary school um, just on the outskirts of Vintuk. And there we're looking at classrooms of between 30 to 39 kids in, in, in a classroom. How do you ensure that a lot of schools in 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 developing countries um, and emerging economies stagger the, the, the what you what you mentioned about so like having staggered openings? How do you, how do you developing and emerging economies approach schools reopening given the realities of you know having certain grades return to school or having staggered reopenings? Yeah, and I think that's a very valid concern, right? We are talking about countries. Uh, I can tell you, for example, India, where uh, we have understaffed schools and where human resources are already lacking. Uh, in, in such a situation, how do you bring children back uh, in a staggered approach in multiple shifts when your human resources already uh, are few? And, and I think that's a very valid concern also to ensure that your educators are safe. It's not only about the learners. Um, I think I think we don't have really any clear answers on that right now. However, what we do know is that 
um, we, we are, we're going to have to uh, bring bring children back to school sooner than later. And right now, we talked a lot about the policy level concerns, right? I wanted to go deeper into the household and talk about how we need to support caregivers and parents at this time, right? Uh, we're talking about a situation where children who were enrolled across schools in, in again, the developing world were heavily relying on school feeding programs, for example, right? And now in the absence of those school feeding programs, governments need to think about how they either through school grant programs, through cash transfers, through ration delivery are able to prioritize non-education related outcomes that actually have a bearing on educational outcomes. We're talking about now malnutrition to rise across the world. We're talking about gender-based violence to rise across the world. We're talking about how parents need to actually be trained or sensitized in handling some of these things. And does this crisis provide us with an opportunity of rethinking how education, sort of like how educational attainment uh, or sort of like how education policy is drafted and sort of like which areas to focus on? What are some of the opportunities that you think this crisis brings? Absolutely. I think one of the things that we are, we are, we are doing uh, right now as part of this crisis is understanding what parts of the entire system need reform holistically. Uh, and one of the phrases that you'd hear very often in education right now is building back better, is to take this as an opportunity uh, to understand... Was that building back better? Build, build back better, yeah. Back understand better, right. how our system is deeply flawed right now. Uh, to be able to, one, be resilient enough in handling a crisis like this, but in generally also ensuring that schooling translates to learning. And then when we reopen schools this time, we're able to address some of these ingrained inadequacies in the system. One thing that we're talking a lot about is in prioritizing equity uh, and whether it is children with disability, whether it's uh, the, uh, you know, prioritizing the student mental and emotional health uh, right now, things that we've often ignored in our education systems. Uh, we've often only prioritized literacy and numeracy skills, right? Uh, yeah. This this entire, you know, in a very hyper-optimistic manner, in fact, this entire crisis has forced us to think about things that we've been long ignoring. Um, and psychosocial emotional learning is definitely one of them. Now, earlier in the year, I had the chance to sit down with Yair Laibo from Israel and Shabana Basich Rasik from Afghanistan to talk about the future of education. Shabana started the first all-girls boarding school in Afghanistan, and Yair co-founded the International School of Peace on the island of Lesbos in Greece for refugee children. I started off by asking them about whether schools were preparing students for the future. This is what they had to say. Hey, hello. My name is Yair Leibel. Um, three years ago, I founded the International School of Peace for refugee children on the island of Lesbos in Greece. Um, today, the International School of Peace, or ISOP in short, uh, is one of the largest uh, refugee programs uh, in Greece. We have 180 students uh, studying in three different uh, languages, which is Arabic for more students from Syria and Iraq, uh, Congolese and French for uh, children from Congo, and Dari for children from Afghanistan. Um, I'll just uh, spend. I'll just give a few more words about the school, uh, just for general uh, knowledge. I think uh, we have a special model of working with communities well, 
And regarding your question, I think uh, working with communities is something that we need to think of when we speak, when we think about the future. And uh, the thing is that we, all of our teachers in the schools are refugees themselves, so they come from the communities. And the special thing about the school located in Lesbos, which, which is a, an island before uh, Europe, but uh, but also uh, just after they fled their countries, is that we try to give both uh, the acknowledgement of what was, meaning the continuation of learning the language of the culture of back home, and uh, tools for the future, preparing the children for life in the West. Coming to your question about uh, does the schools prepare children for the future, um, I want to know to Shabana's first point about uh, different uh, about different groups and like who are those children we are preparing for the future. I think that we should acknowledge the fact that schools in history were always a platform that for some was a preparation for the future and for many rest was a preparation for the present. Uh, industry had its needs, uh, societies had its needs. Uh, unfortunately, we don't need the whole of the society to be professors or engineers. We need people to clean the streets. We need people to be in the shops. And when it comes the, to education today, I think one of the questions rising from the uh, from the higher standards of living that more and more people enjoy in the world uh, when more developing countries become developed countries is the question is how can we how can we prepare children for a more equal world at the same time that it will be a world that actually needs different kind of professions in it i think both of you touched on a very important point um and as, i mean when you were talking it, it reminded me of you know my parents grew up in a very oppressive uh, regime under apartheid in namibia and there, the education system was deliberately designed to keep people who looked like my mother um, under certain jobs. So there were certain jobs that the education system designed for them, and that's where they would go. And I think when we're looking at, I think when we're looking at the future, I think perhaps it's also important to take a step back and and talk about how, instead of are we preparing young people for for the future, rather is the education system that we're designing more inclusive? And and based on both of your experience and what you've talked about, you obviously talked about moved away from this very skills-based education system to more sort of a community and values-based. But how does a, a capacious or inclusive uh, system look like in Afghanistan where that is inclusive of girls, for example? Um, Shabana. I think that's a, um, a great question. I think one of the, one of the important things that... Um, yeah, you mentioned is um, the issue of um, how we look at how we look at education, right? Um, for instance, um, in Western countries, uh, education may be considered a, a fundamentally basic human right. But when you stand in front of children, uh, particularly girls, uh, in a place like Afghanistan or refugee uh, kids who attend Yair's school, um, access to education often becomes a privilege. Um, and it's difficult for them to imagine um, that access to be a fundamental human right. Um, uh, coming back to your question about uh, how do we create inclusive um, educational spaces, um, I believe um, SOLA um, is a perfect model of this. Um, we are perhaps uh, the only school in Afghanistan where our 70 students 
today represent uh, 26 of the 34 provinces in the country. And um, those uh, 70 students represent most of the major um, and other um, uh, ethnic minority groups uh, across Afghanistan, different linguistic groups. So uh, when you bring in um, a lot of uh, minority group students um, into a space like SOLA, how do you how do you uh, prepare them for a future where beyond this school space they find themselves in spaces that are designed to keep them out? For instance, um, one of the major um, requirements, mainly because um, languages in Afghanistan, uh, we have two official languages um, that, that are recognized by the government or or the uh, the official languages of the government, and that's Pashto and Dari. Um, and so when you're a minority in Afghanistan, it, unless you've had uh, privileged access to education, you may not necessarily um, have been exposed to these languages um, before. And one of the things that we do at SOLA by design is that um, our model is that once our students uh, graduate SOLA High School, that they will be able to speak uh, Pashto, Dari, and English fluently. Um, and, and this is meant to achieve the purpose of allowing them to um, access um, job opportunities, especially within the public sector, um, in which uh, language requirements are um, pretty um, serious. Um, so language is one aspect, is that it opens up opportunities for them. Uh, but beyond that, that uh, in, in the context of Afghanistan, uh, the boarding school space um, creates uh, opportunities for girls uh, in rural parts of Afghanistan who may not otherwise have um, the ability to continue with their education beyond elementary school, especially in the most insecure areas or in a lot of the districts in Afghanistan where we don't have a single female teacher. Yeah. And Yair, from your experience in the School of Peace in Greece, how how was how difficult was it to try and create a very inclusive space from for for for, for children from such a diverse um, set of countries? I think the problem is not with children. The problem is with adults. The problem is with us. Once you design the right program, children will devote to it. And we saw it every day in the School of Peace when we have children from Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, Congo, Muslim children, Christian uh, children, um, uh, children of color, children of uh, Middle Eastern color. And they all come at first with a lot of prejudice over one another. And we May we can look at it as a problem, but we must remember that education is a reflection of society. And the beautiful things about problems in school that they reflect our problems that we have in society. Having said that, and after experiencing uh, the School of Peace, I, I am completely sure that once you design a program which actually address uh, uh, inclusivity, in inclusiveness, uh, so things are much flexible. And to answer your question, I think that um, the, when you bring people together and when you bring children together and when you make them experience one another 
at the same time that you keep their original identity at place, like in this way, you actually dissolve the fight, the survival fight between it's either my identity or someone else's identity. I think in that term, one of the mistakes that like the efforts of multiculturalism uh, uh, had is is the fact that multiculturalism tried to create this this large pool of identity where you're allowed to be yourself, but at the end, identities were not protected. So I think the combination between one's original story and the and creating a common ground between different stories might be a key. I, I actually find that very fascinating because I could um, also, uh, as Yair, you're speaking about um, this uh, example, um, we, you know, at Sola, our students come from different parts of the country, and the very first person um, these students meet when they come to uh, Sola campus is their big sister. We have a very robust uh, big sister, little sister program. And by design, um, the um, big sister and little sisters uh, are from very different parts of the country. They're from different uh, ethnic groups or linguistic groups. And that is to encourage from the very day one this message that when we're here, we're, we're, we're not in these small cliques or groups that we recognize, but that we embrace everyone from different parts of um, the country. And another observation I just wanted to make, uh, it just hit me that uh, your school of uh, peace and sola is a Pashto word that means peace. <laughs> <laughs> nice. That's very interesting. I mean, from from what you said, it reminded me of, I so I dabbled in teaching at the University of Stellenbosch um, last year. And I was teaching first years worldviews and ethics and belief systems. And the idea was to explore all the different lenses that we use to see the world. Mm-hmm. And, and, and what was very interesting from that experience is my classroom was a manifestation of the real inequalities that South Africa faces. And just because you enter into a space doesn't mean that you all enter in that space equally. Mm-hmm. I mean, I had students who were from very opulent parts of Stellenbosch, which is one of the richest areas in South Africa, and right across the hill from one of the most impoverished. And even if you're in that space, you know, it's there's there's a level of of you know there's a language barrier, for example. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's also important when we're talking about not just sort of like creating access and spaces for everyone. It's sort of that a kid from a very rich neighborhood and a kid from a very poor neighborhood can enter into the same spaces and feel equal. And I think, and both of you sort of like touched on that and sort of like, how do we create that? Because a lot of a lot of that is social construction. And mm-hmm. I think education systems must also sort of like address those deep disparities in society and not necessarily reinforce that. And and I think that um, that in that in that term, like life and the struggles of life is actually something useful to use. Uh, I can a short example in one of the biggest fights we had in school, because the children are living in refugee camps on the island on the island of uh, Lesbos. Uh, maybe you heard about the famous, not in a good way, uh, Moria camp, where like the life conditions are really, really shameful. And so children experience violence in the refugee camps daily. They come to school, they come frustrated. But the school is a surrounding, like a beautiful surrounding, which actually creates a a place, a safe place to bring all the frustration uh, from the camp. So in one of the fights, I think it was the biggest I was involved in, uh, it was during dinner, the adult Afghan class boys started fighting the adult Afghan, uh, uh, sorry, the adult Afghan uh, uh, class, 
the boys from the Afghan class started fighting the boys from the Syrian class. And it was in the middle of dinner, meaning like there are 180 children around them. Some of them are six years old and they are the 17 years old. This is after doing uh, this program with them about responsibility and about like uh, being uh, responsible for younger children. And they are fighting, like smashing the whole thing up. So our teachers interfered and it was a, a huge mess. And, uh, and it was like, for me, it was crystal clear that uh, like a message needs to be brought. Uh, right there. So I needed to stand up on the table and then I addressed them uh, and and I, I asked them what is the difference between the wars that they fled from, the wars that led them make the, made them leave their houses, like leave their families and what they're doing here now. And how come that they choose to be a student, uh, they choose to be students in the School of Peace uh, and what they do actually is to uh, replicate the exact thing that like made them not be students back home in Afghanistan uh, and in Syria. And I say it because, you know, we need to use real life. We need to use the complexities in real life. Sometimes people may have the like tendency to romanticize education as something sterile, which just create the safe space and give the right tools. But actually we need with those children and with uh, children that was displaced from from their houses and with children in Afghanistan that be, that like confront such a complicated reality mm. their complicated reality is is power it, yeah. it's actually something that they can build themselves from but it is uh, us that needs to frame it this way but I think Suta you brought a really important point about um, uh, how do you m- make once the once people enter that inclusive space how is their access equal um, you, you know I think there there are uh, multiple dimensions to um, inclusivity and um, yes uh, ethnic diversity linguistic diversity those are one aspect but I think one of the ones that we haven't um, or that at least I haven't fully uh, touched upon was the socioeconomic diversity, uh, which is incredibly important. Uh, we um, we have students um, whose mothers are incarcerated, and we make an effort to open our application um, process to everyone from across Afghanistan. And we then make sure that we are able to um, actively reach out to um, girls who live in orphanages, um, and they may not necessarily be orphans, but sometimes their family may not be able to afford to feed them, so they place them in orphanages. Or in some cases, um, um, shelters who um, uh, provide this halfway house um, for boys and girls whose mothers are incarcerated. Um, And we also do an active outreach um, to girls um, in in those uh, halfway, halfway houses. But one of the things that we recognize that once they come into SOLA, what do we do um, to really truly create a space in which they can experience SOLA uh, equally without um, without being judged from the very day one? Because um, uh, the reality is that when you when you when you are trying to create an inclusive space and you bring people with different realities with different experiences, they may not necessarily be on the on the same page uh, from day one. But you can create opportunities where they can uh, look at each other. Um, uh, with a, a fresh perspective. And surprisingly, there might be an interesting debate about this, but uh, um, we we had to adopt um, 
uh, uniform. School uniform became one of those uh, factors that <laughs> I'm sure. But in our case, it, it allowed, yeah. um, it, it took care of this issue of who's well-dressed and who's yeah. not. Um, and as a result, uh, you know, they, uh, the girls at Sola hate the uniform yeah. as well. But <laughs> yeah. I think, but it, that's, I mean, it also touches on the importance and I think you guys constantly kept on reinforcing that of empathy. And a lot of research and a lot of researchers have argued that education reform should encompass a, a greater degree of empathy in sort of in how we teach children. Um, and then they also touch on the need to have things like critical theory, critical thinking, um, creative problem solving, effective communication. Um, I mean, if I was taught that at school, I'd be much better at talking. Um, but perhaps in way of closing, what are some of the elements um, that you think gets lost or is missing in our conversation around education reform? I think in some ways you just touched upon upon them, you know, I think, um, yes, uh, when you when you look, when you take a, clo- a closer look at um, education reform or even innovation in education, you will see um, uh, uh, initiatives uh, you know, um, looking at teaching students how to be critical uh, consumers and producers of media or social media, or uh, how to be critical thinkers in general, etc. How to how to be effective communicators. But I think at the heart of all of this, especially given what we're experiencing now around the world and across the world, um, teaching um, young children. Um, empathy and kindness um, is critical. It's not just necessary, but I think it's critical. Um, yes, I, I think I totally agree with you, Shabana. Mm-hmm. Um, I must say there is some spe- uh, skeptical voice in me uh, rising because I think, I think at the end, uh, like reality happens, life happens, and uh, for example, I can think of many students in our school that uh, grew up in very good education before running away from whether it is Afghanistan, Congo, Syria. Syria was the pearl of the Arab world like uh, up until uh, 10 years ago. And you know, at the end, uh, when you leave everything, when you end up in a refugee camp, when you experience the European control borders, police as something violent. Uh, what I'm trying to say is that when you experience a life without empathy, without coexistence, um, then, then this is what life is for you. And this is what the world is for you. Uh, and I'm saying it because I think that we shouldn't just like uh, praise uh, the values of education that we believe in, we should be critical to the world uh, as it is today. Uh, and we should think and understand that if we want to, all, to see the world as it could be, so education is a tool uh, and it's important, but education will always reflect society. And, uh, and having said that, I do want to believe that there are things to be done. I do believe that uh, every positive experience that you give uh, for a child, you give a child, is something that stays with him. It's like a seed that uh, with uh, just the right uh, watering will will grow in the future. Uh, but we must acknowledge that uh, that n- not like that it is not less. 
what I'm trying to say is that we must remember that at the end, teachers and headmasters, we are not magicians. We are a part of society. And education is a communal project. It needs parents, it needs uh, institutions, it needs government, it needs, it needs governments, organization. And only when all of the people which form society actually uh, collaborate together, then you can have a good education. Now that's it for this episode of Oxford Policy Pod. I'm your host, Suta Kavari. If you liked what you heard on this episode and would like to hear similar conversations and discussions, why don't you hit that subscribe button? You can find us on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, on Google Podcasts, no one, anywhere where you get your podcast. We'll be back again next week. Thank you for listening. Oxford Policy Pod is produced by students from the Blavatnik School of Government at the University of Oxford. It is produced and edited by Jamie Morris and Ellen Tipping.